Father, again, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the privilege you've given us to gather together to uh, sing your praises and to declare your excellencies. And Father, I pray as we come to your word that our hearts would be receptive, that uh, you would use your word to change us, to make us more like your son Jesus, so that uh, you would be greatly glorified. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there are many people uh, this morning coming to different churches and coming to worship the Lord. And there are many different views of what worship is in the church these days. But as we're going to see today uh, through the example of the wise men, as we call them, what genuine worship should be like and what our focus should be. Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2? And we're continuing our break from our study in Colossians. We'll get back to that in the beginning of the year, Lord willing. And we're looking today at the three differing responses to the birth of King Jesus. And the question would really be, you know, what is our response? What is our response to his birth? Now, a little context for the book of Matthew. We know that it's universally accepted that Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote Matthew. It was written sometime after uh, the Lord's ascension and before the destruction of Jerusalem. And we know that Matthew, or Levi, his formal name, uh, was a sinner called to repentance by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 9 and Luke 5, we see that the Lord Jesus calls him to follow him, and he does. And he does. And as I've shared last week, the Gospel of Matthew contains a myriad of Old Testament quotes. It appears to be a bridge between the Old Testament, which pointed to Christ, to what Christ would do specifically for us. Now, you might remember when we studied Matthew that Matthew is the presentation of King Jesus, the King of the Jews. And with that, there was the affirming miracles and the teaching of the king. Now, within that, we also see that Matthew is about the rejection of the king and the opposition to the king of kings by the Jews, and this rejection culminating in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ according to God's preordained plan, which is the venue in which he brought forth salvation, this salvation rejected by his people, which is offered to us. Now, earlier in chapter 1, we see that Matthew is about Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. More specifically, he fulfills, first of all, the divinic covenant that he would reign forever on his throne. And we also see he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant that through him all the nations would be blessed. Through him, salvation blessing alone would come through Christ. And more specifically, we saw in chapter 1 the genealogy of Joseph's side, which proved that Jesus was the rightful king, rightful, uh, rightfully the king of the Jews. And then last week, we saw the birth of Jesus Christ. Remember, we saw Joseph's dilemma that uh, Mary was found to be with child, but it was not Joseph's. It was of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, being a righteous man and a compassionate man, desired to put her away secretly and not to disgrace her. But the Lord intervened in a dream uh, to Joseph by the angel, pointing out the great truth that God is taking on human flesh to save his people from their sins. And so he tells, the angel tells Joseph to marry Mary, to not fear, but to marry her. Because the Lord himself, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. 
And we saw that this pointed to the prophecy that was fulfilled. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, Jesus, the Lord who is salvation, the Lord who saves, broke the sin barrier between God and man. And it's because of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ that we can have a relationship with the living God, God with us. And so at this point, we turn to chapter 2, where I believe, as I've mentioned, we're going to see three differing responses to the birth of Jesus Christ. With that in mind, let's take a look at our passage. Matthew chapter 2, let's look at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Here we see our statement. Their passage begins with the statement, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And then he points out the time after he was born in the days of Herod the king. Now you might remember, as I just mentioned, we have the account of his birth back in Matthew chapter 1, that uh, Mary would bear a son of the Holy Spirit, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he it is he who will save his people from their sins. The Messiah King, God incarnate, has been born. God has taken on human flesh. The Word has become flesh. And this is the first mention of the place of his birth here now in the Gospel of Matthew, which is Bethlehem of Judea. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, now this uh, t- this town, Bethlehem, it's uh, called the city of David, Luke chapter 2, verse 4. And it was about six miles south of Jerusalem. And it's interesting, the term Bethlehem means house of bread. And if you think about it, the Lord Jesus himself is the very bread of life. If you partake of him through faith, you receive the forgiveness of sins. It is through him, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful that we see that uh, this is where he's born, in the city called House of Bread. And within this, we see here, our text says, another time marker in a sense, it says, in the days of Herod the king. In the days of Herod the king. Now, who was this Herod guy? Who was this Herod guy? Well, first of all, he's called the king. And also, uh, he's called Herod the king in verse 3. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, he is called the king of Judea. And so who is this Herod guy? Well, first of all, he is known as Herod the Great, and he was not a Jew. He was a Idumean. He was one of Edomite origin. Esau would have been his uh, great, 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 great granddaddy. That's who would have been his. So he comes from the line of Esau. And Herod was not a very nice man. We know in 47 BC, when he was in his mid-20s, he was named the governor of Galilee, very high position, and apparently Rome wanted to pacify the Jews, and they were hoping that he could do that, and through a trail of much blood, historically speaking, we see that he did. And we see, as we'll see today, that Herod was a clever yet evil man who used violence to hold on to power. He used murder to hold on to power. In 40 B.C., the Roman Senate named him the King of the Jews, the King of the Jews. And this is certainly a title that the Jews despised because he was not a Jew by birth or by religion. He was a brutal killer, but yet he was uh, very, he, he was, uh, he had complete control. We see that when the temple was rebuilt and refurbished, it was called Herod's Temple, Herod's Temple. And as we saw, he was a brutal killer. He murdered many people to stay in power. 
He murdered his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, his wife. He ordered one of his sons to be put to death. He was a brutal man. He was a murderer. He was a murderer. Now, certainly later in chapter 2, we see that Scripture reveals his murderous, this this murderous maniac as he uh, uh, slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its environs from two years old and under. What a horrible man he was. What a horrible man. And we'll see that even more so. So Herod was the king of the Jews by virtue of Rome, and now we see the true Messiah, the king of the Jews, has come onto the, has come onto the scene, and now we have these uh, magi. So verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Uh-oh, we got King Herod here who is the king of the Jews, this despotic murderer, the king of the Jews, willing to do anything to hold on to power. And now behold, these magi from the east arrive saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And they say they saw his star, his star in the east, and have come to worship him. These magi were looking for the king of the Jews who had been born, and they were coming to worship him. Now, unlike the blessed carol we just sang a little while ago, we three kings, we don't see anywhere in Scripture that there's a number. Uh, we see that these magi, they saw his star in the east, and they traveled to Jerusalem. And then, as we see later on, as we'll see later, the star led them from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, to the house in which uh, Jesus was. So what do we know about these magi? There's a lot of different opinions out there. You could read a million commentaries and find out a million things. But what do we know about them Well, our text says they were from the east. They were not Jews. They were Gentiles. They were of the east. And some teachers have said that maybe these magis were the kingmakers, and that's possible, but I don't see that here. They're not coming to make the king of kings the king. They already said we're coming. Where is he who is the king? He's already the king. And secondly, they're they're coming to worship him, actually. That's why they're coming. So with this... It's possible that these magi were the type of magi that we see in the time of Daniel, when Israel had been exiled to Babylon. Indeed, interestingly, that 600 years before this, Nebuchadnezzar appointed Daniel as ruler over the whole province of Babylon because the Lord enabled him to interpret his dream. And in Daniel 2.48, we see that he was made chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And we see in Daniel 5.11, Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel chief of the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. And this term, magicians, here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is our word magos, or magi, where we get our word magi. And it is only used here in Daniel, and it's used ten times. And so some think these are pagan astrologers, possibly, but most likely they were the wise men of the day in the East here, and they were likely highly educated like those of Daniel's time. And it's quite possible, based on the truth from the book of Daniel, that Daniel had passed down. Remember, Daniel was the head of these guys. That quite possibly, he passed down the truth concerning who would be coming. Obviously, the king of the Jews. And so with that in mind, we don't know much about these magi from Scripture. But what we do know is that they responded to the revelation that God had brought forth. They responded. And so what else can we know about them? Notice they have... They have influence. They were able to receive a hearing before Herod the king. That means they had influence. 
which means there was probably more than three of them, um, because all Jerusalem, as we'll see later on, was troubled. Something big was happening, probably a caravan or whatever it might be, with their own guards or whatever. But certainly all of Jerusalem was troubled. They knew about it, so it was not a small thing. So then you got these group of foreign dignitaries coming and arriving in Jerusalem asking questions. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star and have come to worship him. Now this is amazing right here as I look at this, uh, what they understand concerning the birth of the Christ. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They're looking for the one who has been born king of the Jews. And then they say, for, explaining, we saw his star in the east. It was his star. It was the king of the Jews' star. He has been born. And there's all sorts of ideas and stuff about what this star was, whether it was Jupiter and Saturn and Halley's Comet or whatever, but all that stuff isn't, isn't valid because we see it as a supernatural phenomenon. We see later on this same star down in verse 9. You can look at that. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. That's supernatural. It's God doing that. And so they saw his star in the east, and it led them to Jerusalem there, to the very house. This is nothing more than miraculous star that God brought forth to bring these uh, magi to where the Lord was. These Gentile magi were given revelation from God concerning Christ, possibly through Daniel, the head of the wise men 600 years before. Possibly he had shared the scriptures concerning the Messiah King who would come. But what we do know is that these magi understood that the King of the Jews had been born. They understood that. And so they have come and they knew that they needed to worship him, to worship him. And again, why did they come so far with so little revelation? They came to worship him. You see, the king of the Jews who have been born is worthy of worship, and only God is worthy of worship. You see, God had taken on human flesh, and God is worthy of worship alone. And where is the king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. You know, these days in churches, we have a lot of different types of worship going on. And what is worship? Worship bands, worship this, worship that, you know. Some of it's valid, some of it isn't. But here, worship, what we see is about Christ. A worship service, a time to worship, should be coming to worship the living God. Coming to worship Christ. And I ask you, did you come here today to worship the Lord? We can get distracted, but we need to get refocused, right? Come to worship the Lord. Did you come because you wanted to? These wise men certainly did. They came quite a, quite a distance. Did you come with an attitude of joy as we'll see they had? Well, our desire is not simply to sing songs and to see our friends, and although fellowship and singing is a blessing, we come to worship the Lord. We come to worship the Lord. So with this in mind, what were the responses? What were the responses of those at this time? Notice, first of all, verse 3, And when Herod the king had heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So now the news gets to Herod. He's the king of the Jews, right? And the, that the wise men are looking for who he who has been born king of the Jews. And so he's troubled. And this word troubled means to be shaken up, to be stirred up. It means to be thrown into confusion, unsettled. 
uh, speaks of mental and spiritual agitation. He's disturbed. He's disturbed. He's all shook up. He's he's concerned. And we've probably uh, we understand that feeling when something uh, surprising and, and large has happened. You know, some of you weren't alive back in two thousand, and you know when one when the towers went down. Uh, but uh, you know, it shook us up. This this great of this great this large evil event. And so Herod, being in the opposite way, he being evil, is all shaken up. Now we can understand why he's shaken up. He is the king of the Jews, and he has used his entire life murdering people to keep his spot. And now these people come saying, where is he born king of the Jews? That's a direct competition to him. We can understand his response, why he's troubled. He's a wicked man. He doesn't want to give up his power, and he will kill to keep it. He's just like Satan. He's just like Satan. So Herod is the king of the Jews, and now these magi are looking for the one who's been born king of the Jews, and in context of Herod's wickedness, I understand his evil response. But what I don't understand is the response of the Jews in Jerusalem. Take a look, verse 3 again. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. That, that, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. The Jews were waiting for their Messiah to be born. Shouldn't they be rejoicing? The king of the Jews has been born? Where is he? We know in our scriptures it says Bethlehem. Let's go check it out. But they don't do that. They're troubled. They're troubled with him. All Jerusalem with, and all Jerusalem with him. You know, I'm amazed that they didn't just get up and walk to Bethlehem and look around. Where is he? They knew much more than the Magi knew, as we'll see. Why would they be shaken up by the news that their Messiah had been born? Let me suggest a possible answer here based on the word of God. We see later on, certainly this generation, but the generation which partially merges into the next one in which Jesus was crucified was in unbelief. They were in unbelief. The apostle John shares in John 1, 9 through 11, there was a light, true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And it goes on to talk about if when we receive him, we receive him by faith, and we become children of God, but they didn't do that. John 6, 35, Jesus said to the Jews, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you, you have not, you have not seen me, and yet you, you, I say to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. They didn't believe. A little later on in John 10, verse 24, the Jews gathered around him and were saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus told them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These bear witness of, of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me, and I give them eternal life to them. And they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is in heaven has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, and the Jews took up stones to stone him. We know later on the Lord Jesus, when he was coming in to Jerusalem and mourning over their unbelief, 
He shares in Matthew chapter 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. These Jews of Herod's day and the, I believe, certainly of Christ's day were in unbelief. They were in unbelief. And they were agitated and troubled by those who truly came to worship the Lord. And certainly this baby didn't fit their plans for the Messiah. We see the Jews were looking for someone who would deliver them from the Roman bondage. And certainly they would have been upset because this is going to shake up the boat with Herod. This is going to cause big trouble. Certainly, But if you are looking for the king of the Jews, you're looking for the Messiah, you should be saying, wow, he's born, praise the Lord. But this didn't fit their paradigm. It didn't fit their paradigm. In unbelief, they would rather have a Messiah of their own desires and their own timing rather than the one declared by God to be the true Messiah. One pastor writes, Unbelieving Jews are just like all other unbelievers. They refuse to seek God or worship him. Being Jewish no more inclines one to recognize God's salvation than being raised in a Christian home. Proximity to the truth is not enough. It is not shocking to find that when our Lord publicly presented himself to the nation some 30 years later, accompanied by signs and wonders, they failed as a nation to accept him as their king and their Messiah, and it was in Jerusalem he was crucified. And so here, the Jews should have understood that their Messiah would be born, that all of us like sheep have gone astray, but yet he has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. They should have known there was going to be the sufferings for the glories to follow. You remember the Lord Jesus on the day he rose from the dead, third day, he's walking to Emmaus with those dejected disciples having having concealed his identity. And he shared with them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself in the scriptures. It points to Christ. And so let me ask you this. Does this message trouble you? Does it agitate you? Does the word of God being proclaimed trouble you? Uh, are you agitated by those who are trying to seek the Lord? You know, I used to be before I was saved. I thought I was saved, but I was agitated. I got a little upset about things. If so, this is an evidence of unbelief and that you might still be in your sins. And you need a Savior, and that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's a gracious God who gave himself for you. Now, false religion is not going to agitate you. Bad guys that feed your flesh is not going to feed your unbelief. That's not going to bother you. You're going to enjoy that. But here, these Jews were troubled. They were troubled. Sadly, we see this these days where so many uh, focus on the things around Christ rather than Christ. And we see that. So what is your response concerning the truth of God concerning Christ? Well, notice King Herod's response. It's a calculated, uh, deceptive plot to kill Jesus. Verse 4, And gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them when, where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means the least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. 
And when you have found him, report to me that I may come and worship him, that I too may come and worship him. So here, uh, Herod inquires of Israel's theocrats uh, where Jesus was to be born. He calls all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And the the term chief priest uh, is not just a term to describe the high priest. It described described any ex-high priest, uh, possibly the captain of the temple, other priests that included the 70 and the Sanhedrin. These were the top religious guys. They were top religious dudes. They're not your ordinary priests. Now, Israel was a theocracy, and they were ruled by these people, these uh, theocrats. They were the religious rulers. And then we have, notice, the scribes of the people. They were not priests. Uh, they were from other tribes. However, they were learned in the law, and they were those who were uh, the theologians in a sense. They were their legal scriptural beagles in a sense, in a, in a, in a sadly, in a, in a bad way. So Herod, an unbeliever, inquires of these theocrats where the Christ is to be born. Verse 4, And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ is to be born. What's their answer? They say it right away. And they said to him, In Bethlehem and Judea, for so it is written about the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. No hesitation. Micah 5, 2. Bethlehem. Right away. Out of Bethlehem, a ruler who will shepherd our people. They knew it. Simple answer. They knew exactly where he was to be born. And it's interesting, later on, we see the Jews of Jesus' day, when he grows up, the Jews when he's, when, he's, when he's an adult, we see that they understood very clearly where he was to be born. John chapter 7, verse 40, some of the multitude, when they heard some of the words, were saying, this is certainly a prophet. Others are saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem and the village David was from? So they understood it too. The Jews understood exactly where he was to be born. And you would think those who knew the word of God would have went there right away. All this commotion, where is he who's been born? They would have said, let's, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's go check it out. Let's see if he's been born. But they couldn't do that. Two hours walk, they couldn't do that. We see no record of them doing that. We see no record of them going to see where the Messiah was, the King of the Jews. And for some of you, maybe coming to church or a Bible state, it's a hurdle. you got excuses, whatever it might be. That's telling of where your spiritual condition is at that time. These leaders did not seek to worship Christ because they didn't believe. They didn't believe. Six miles away, yet they wouldn't even go there, as we see. Yet the Magi, who had limited revelation, believed and traveled a great distance. Notice uh, Herod ascertains from the Magi this this timing which the star appeared. Verse 7, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. Now, he's beginning to show his sneakiness, his, his evil craftiness. Uh, he finds out after it's Bethlehem as the place, he wants to know the time. And he secretly calls them, and he ascertained the time. And later on, we know that the star must have appeared no more than two years before, because Herod orders, this madman orders, uh, the slaying of all the male children from two and under. 
Matthew 2.16, you can look up at that. Then Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, and he became very enraged. He sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its environs from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. From the Magi. So Herod knows the place and the approximate age of the Christ who has been born king of the Jews. And notice now he deceptively uses the Magi to bring forth his evil plan. Verse 8, and we read this earlier in the book of Revelation, that uh, Satan attempted to kill a child. He's doing it through Herod. That's what he's doing. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I may come and worship him. Hey, that sounds great on the surface. When you find him, come back, tell me where he is, so I can worship him. Herod must be a Christian, right? He wants to worship Christ. Well, unfortunately, Herod doesn't desire to worship him at all. He desires to kill him. He desires to kill him. Indeed, as I mentioned uh, later on, uh, we see in Matthew that Joseph is warned to take the child, uh, and he's warned in a dream to take the child because of Herod's evil desire to slay him. Look at verse 13, chapter 2. Now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. To destroy him. The term destroy means to kill. That's what he said earlier on. He wanted to kill him. So obviously Herod didn't want any competition. He's the king of the Jews. He's going to eliminate anyone that's uh, coming up that would take his spot. He's not a believer. He's in the domain of darkness. He's just like Satan. And I mentioned this earlier, but in Revelation uh, chapter 12, and the dragon stood before the woman and about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. That's what Herod is doing. Satan is doing it through Herod. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up with God into his throne. Now, some of you say, well, I would never do that. I say, oh, Really? You know, before Christ, uh, we actively put to death the thought of Christ's lordship in our lives. We didn't want him lording over us. We didn't want him, uh, well, I think we got our crows again or something. <laughs> Every once in a while we get a little crow banging trying to get in here. Invite him in. So. We say, you say, well, I wouldn't do that. But before we came to Christ, we, we wanted to kill off his Lord. We didn't want anything to do with what he wanted to do. We, 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 uh, didn't want him as king over our lives because we were the kings of our lives. We didn't want someone telling us how to live. You look at non-believers and say, I don't want to be told how to live. It's the same way we were. Therefore, we get agitated at those who share Christ to us before we were saved. And Jesus made it clear that being angry is as good as murdering in your heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard the ancients were told you should not commit murder. Whoever gets murder shall be made liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty with, before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to enter into fire, to go into fiery hell. And I'm painfully aware, and you might be too if you're a believer, painfully aware of those who hate you. You know, there are those who actually hate us because of Christ. And Jesus said that would happen. He said that would happen. You can turn to John 15. 
You know, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're, you're going to be, not all the time, but you're going to be hated by those who don't know Christ. You're going to be hated by the world. Herod hates Jesus. He hates Christ. He hates him. He hates the king of the Jews. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They kept my word, they will keep yours also. If you're a believer in Christ and you're going to manifest his character, maybe share his word at times as the Lord leads, know that the world is going to hate you too. Now there are those who might even deceitfully say they want to worship the Lord, like Herod, but they actually hate the Lord, and they will hate you too, and they will hate you too. But don't be surprised. And I believe if they had the power with no consequences, and if we, before coming to Christ, had the power with no consequences, uh, in our hate and agitation and unbelief, we would do the same thing. We'd do the same thing. What is your view then towards those who share God's word with you? Is it agitation or hate? I'm no different than Herod. And that's the way we all were before. So we all were. Maybe some of you realize today when you get angry, when you, you get angry when you hear the word of God. When it's applied to your life and it's an evidence maybe you don't believe and that you need forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And he's a gracious God that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and he'll save you if you'll humble yourself and cry out to him for salvation. So then, we've seen in our passage uh, the response to the news, the birth of Christ so far are not good. We have the Jews in Jerusalem who are agitated and upset. And we have Herod who is, uh, who is stirring, who is, uh, stirred up enough to deceitfully plan to, to devour the Christ child. And then notice after looking at these responses of unbelief, let's take a look at the response of the Magi. Verse nine. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood under over the child, or over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child Mary, child, excuse me, with Mary, her mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. These magi believed the truth that a Christ would be born, and when they saw his star, they went to search for him, to worship him. And guess what? After talking to Herod, they did not give up on their search. They saw the star in the east. They came to Jerusalem, but when Christ was not there, it must have been a shock to the magi coming to Jerusalem, thinking they're going to they're gonna say, he's right here. We've been waiting for him. But when they say, where is he who's born king of the Jews, they're met with apathy and deception. That's sad. But notice their joyous search continues. And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and stood over where the child was. These magi were seeking Christ. They believed the revelation God had given them. And they desired to worship. And the star appears again. And it takes them right to where Christ was. Right to uh, the house. Uh, stood right over where the child was. It's hanging out right above the house. This is a miraculous star that God used to direct the magi to Christ so that they 
could worship him. And what's their response when they saw that star? When they saw the star, verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Praise the Lord. They they rejoiced. They saw his star. Remember, they understood it was his star. It was his star. It's personal. And folks, they were not rejoicing in the sign. They're rejoicing in what the sign pointed to, the person of Jesus Christ. They rejoiced with great joy. In verse 11, when they came into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Notice Mary's in a house, no longer in a manger at this point. The shepherds visited the manger, but the wise men, these magi, visited the house. And they see the Christ with his mother. And what do they do? End of 11, they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. They didn't worship Mary. They worshipped him. They worshipped him. Now, did they say at that point when they came in, Mary, we're magi from the east. We've come to worship your son. We'd like to do that at 10 a.m. this Sunday. (laughs) When they saw him, they worshipped him. They came right before him and worshipped him. It's personal. They fell down and worshipped him. And we're to worship the Lord God only. Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. We're to worship God, and they did. And they did. Their worship basically was genuine. It was not contrived in the flesh. Their worship was based on the revelation they had that Jesus was born king of the Jews, King Jesus was born, and they worshiped him by faith. They believed he was whom the scripture said he was. And they were not detoured by his humble surroundings, a house in Bethlehem. And this is the center of true worship. Unfortunately, uh, so much worship these days in, in and then don't go out nitpicking everything, but so much worship these days is not focused on Christ. It's focused on the stuff around and all the, the lights and shows and, and music and stuff. It's not focused on Christ. Christ is the center of true worship. We worship God. And so in genuine worship, they're bowing before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he's somewhere under two years old. And they're bowing and worshiping him. They fell down in humility and worshiped him. Now, the scripture reveals that their worship continued as they gave him gifts. Verse 11, middle of it, and opening their treasures. Notice that they're treasures. They presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They opened their treasures. These were treasures to them. They were their treasures. You know, so often we give from the scraps. We don't give what is important to us. We need to give from the first fruits and give uh, joyously. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Now I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. Let each one do as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under convulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. They're joyously giving their treasures. Now some commentators say these treasures funded Mary and Joseph's flight to Egypt. I don't know. I don't see that, but I do see quite possibly from Scripture some symbolism in these treasures. We certainly see gold points to wealth and power and points to the fact that he's a king, I believe. Secondly, frankincense was an incense used in temple worship of the Lord. And I believe it pointed to his deity and his worship thereof. Interestingly, you can turn in uh, Isaiah 60, Isaiah, middle of your Bibles, Isaiah 60. During Christ's millennial reign, we're going to see worship of him. And it's going to include gold and frankincense. 
When I was a kid, I thought, frankincense? I didn't know what that meant. I do now. Isaiah 60, verse 6. And a multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. And the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth will minister to you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. We see them worshiping with gold and frankincense. But what about myrrh? Well, myrrh was used for beauty treatments. It was a mixture of, of uh, vinegar. and with, When it was mixed with vinegar, it was an anesthetic. Um, it was used to anoint a body for burial, for preparation for burial. Indeed, in John 19.39, we see that Nicodemus brought 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe, which they used to prepare Jesus' body for burial. So I think this myrrh points to his sacrificial death, his dying for us. So we have the king of the Jews who has been born, Jesus Christ, who is God, who would suffer and die for our sins. And he is the only one worthy of worship. We have come to worship him. And that's exactly what these Gentile magi did. I believe we have a testament to their faith. Then in verse 12, as we see their obedience, notice this, verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. These magi were warned by God, and they obeyed the Lord. They obeyed the Lord. Those who have true faith obey the Lord, and we see no questions, no questions. They just obeyed the Lord. Like we saw with Joseph, right? Taking Mary as his wife and, and naming him Jesus, obeying the, the Lord. So my question is this, do you worship and obey Jesus? Do you worship him? Is your focus on Jesus, is your focus on worshiping him, God who took on human flesh and died for your sins? When you came today, was that your desire? Was it just to come sing and hear the word or whatever it might be? We can get distracted. (coughs) We can get sidetracked. We can get pulled away from the focus of why we come together. We come to worship the living God. We come to do that together, to glorify his name, exalt him, to declare his excellencies. So we've seen three responses. First of all, the Jews had so much information concerning the Messiah. These Jews were troubled and agitated. They were apathetic. They were unbelieving. We've seen Herod, a murderous madman who saw Christ as his his direct opposition that must be destroyed. And lastly, we saw the Magi with very little revelation who went to great lengths to find the Christ and to worship him. And when they did, they joyously worshiped him. So let me ask you this. Who are you like? Are you like the Jews? Know a lot about the Messiah, but get agitated when the truth confronts your life? Are you in unbelief? Are you like Herod? Directly angry at the possibility of God's lordship over your life? Or are you like the Magi, seeking and desiring to worship Christ? We can get all sidetracked. We can get all sidetracked. Even in church, we can get sidetracked. 
You're sidetracked to things that draws away from the simplicity of a devotion to Christ. This time of Christmas is about Christ, as is every day. But let's not get pulled away from that and let's worship him. Let's focus on him. Let's offer ourselves as living sacrifices that are acceptable. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder. We need to be reminded of uh, what true worship looks like and what the focus is. Father, I pray for anyone who's here or who will be listening, Lord God, that you would work in their hearts if they don't know you, if they are agitated or unbelieving, Lord God, like we all were, that uh, they might see their need for a Savior and know that a Savior has been born and that he died for their sins and rose from the dead. We know your word says whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We pray for anyone who's not saved to be saved. And Father, for those of us who know you, Lord, we can get so distracted. We get so, we can be, we're so forgetful. Help us to refocus on your son Jesus, to set our mind on him, to set our mind on the things above, not the things of earth, the things where Christ are. So we thank you for what you have done through your son Jesus, and we praise you for him in his precious name. Amen.